0: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it.
1: We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without. Thus, Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around.
0: You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. Except when Michael's angry. that is. angry. that is. angry. that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist.
2: I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist.
0: I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it.
1: The fifth article of faith states, We believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. As a child who grew up in Utah and in the church, being technically a convert at the age of ten, I grew up being taught that there are certain fundamental concepts that must be believed to be a part of the true Church of Jesus Christ upon the earth. One of these concepts was to have the proper priesthood and to receive the proper ordinances, or else one could not have salvation. What made me seriously consider receiving baptism as a child was a moment when my family and I were at a water park. I was thinking about all the kids near my age who were speaking of their baptisms, preparing for baptism, etc. And I guess with all that water around us, it was just on my mind. I asked my parents, So I can't get to heaven if I'm not baptized. Do I have to be baptized if I want to be with God? They told me that, yes, you need to be baptized to get to heaven. I remember that concept having a lot of influence in my thoughts at the time. I didn't really know the implications of that fully. But I remember seeing movies like All Dogs Go to Heaven, where heaven is shown as this place of happiness and rest with all the puppies, and it sounded like a place I wanted to be. I didn't want to miss out on it. So I talked to my parents about being baptized, and we asked the LDS missionaries to teach me because I was over the age of 8, and I needed to receive the lessons. Over a course of several weeks and months, I was taught the original LDS discussions. I don't remember a lot about them other than the flip charts, pictures of the celestial kingdom, etc. After sitting through all the lessons and being interviewed by the bishop and stake president, I was recommended for baptism. At the age of 10, I was baptized and confirmed by my uncle the same day as my sister, who had turned 8 not too long before. My family was really excited for me, and I was content with the idea that I was making them proud and being able To be with god in the next life as i started to question my beliefs in high school and turned to a period of lesser activity in the church these things weren't as important to me i became possibly agnostic or atheist for a short time but after feeling convicted of my sins around the age of 19 i returned to full activity after studying lds theology and history one distinctive doctrine that made me seriously consider remaining active in the church and serving a mission was the concept of priesthood and priesthood ordinances The importance of it was conveyed to me in a story from LDS Apostle Orson F. Whitney, which was quoted in LeGrand Richard's seminal book, A Marvelous Work and a Wonder. The story is as follows, Many years ago, a learned man, a member of the Roman Catholic Church, came to Utah and spoke from the stand of Salt Lake Tabernacle. I became well acquainted with him, and we conversed freely and frankly. A great scholar, with perhaps a dozen languages at his tongue's end, he seemed to know all about theology, law, literature, science, and philosophy. One day he said to me, you Mormons are all ignoramuses. You don't even know the strength of your own position. It is so strong that there is only one other tenable in the whole Christian world, and that is the position of the Catholic Church. The issue is between Catholicism and Mormonism. If we are right, you are wrong. If you are right, we are wrong. And that's all there is to it. The Protestants haven't a leg to stand on. For if we are wrong, they are wrong with us, since they were a part of us and went out from us. While if we are right, they are apostates whom we cut off long ago. If we have the apostolic succession from St. Peter, as we claim, there is no need of Joseph Smith and Mormonism. But if we have not that succession, then such a man as Joseph Smith was necessary, and Mormonism's attitude is the only consistent one. It is either the perpetuation of the gospel from ancient times, or the restoration of the gospel in latter days. After reading that story, to me, it boiled down to one of two churches, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Roman Catholic Church. So I decided to study The Great Apostasy by James E. Talmadge, another LDS apostle. Upon reading this book and learning of the Roman Catholic Church's practices of infant baptism, transubstantiation, the Trinity being a doctrine that grew out of Gnosticism, which wasn't true at all, but this is what was asserted by Talmadge, it was so clear to me at the time. The Roman Catholic Church had fulfilled the prophecy given in Isaiah 24.5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Since they had broken the covenant by baptizing babies and believing they were literally eating the body and blood of Jesus in the Mass, that only left one option to me. The LDS Church. It must be true. And when I learned that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery restored the practice of baptism for believers only in confirmation by the laying on of hands to allow entry into the celestial kingdom, and of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for the continued remission of sins by authority that was restored through John the Baptist and the Apostles Peter, James, and John, I was convinced. However, over the years, I've learned many of these claims just weren't true. Isaiah 24.5 wasn't speaking of the Roman Catholic Church performing infant baptism. It was speaking of God's punishment of all the world because of the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam broke the covenant with God in disobeying him, and thus all men are found guilty in Adam unless they turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And while I still deny the doctrine of transubstantiation, I don't believe a special priesthood power from the apostles is needed to bless and receive the Lord's Supper, also known as the sacrament in the LDS Church, or for water baptism. The topic of ordinances, also called sacraments by many Christians, is a topic that is difficult to understand for those who are LDS or leaving the LDS Church. How many ordinances sacraments are there? What purpose do they serve? Why do you need them if you are saved by grace alone through faith alone? These questions and more will be discussed in this episode. While the topic of the ordinances or sacraments of the Church of Jesus Christ can be discussed in very great detail over the course of many episodes, we will do our best to introduce the differences between the ordinances of the LDS Church and the ordinances of the Christian Church. We are Matthew, the Nuclear Calvinist Squirrel Jedi, Michael, the ex-Mormon Mr. Hyde Apologist, and Grand Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. When you were a Latter-day
3: Saint, what was your understanding of the ordinances or sacraments in non-LDS Christianity? And was there anything confusing about them? So, uh, Michael, let's start with you.
2: When I was LDS, and I looked at non-LDS Christians and the ordinances that they performed, I didn't really understand why they were doing them. I knew that they did baptism, and I thought that that was all well and good from an obedience standpoint, but because there was no priesthood attached to it and there was no covenant attached to it to receive eternal life. I thought that, you know, that baptism for instance was completely useless. And I thought that their communion was completely useless because it didn't renew said covenant. So I I could kind of appreciate that they were trying to do it, but because they didn't have the light and knowledge of the restored gospel I thought that those actions were sorely lacking and that it wasn't going to be sufficient to to bring them to the celestial kingdom like us. And, uh, you know, I just kind of thought it was maybe a good talking point for us to uh, lead somebody to the gospel. But that was pretty much the only, the only purpose that they served.
3: And so with baptism, when you looked at non-LDS Christians in terms of baptism, did you— So, it's a similar thing with the sacrament. You you saw that it was kind of like a, it didn't really do anything to grant them eternal life. So, you saw it it as kind of something that was ineffectual or ineffective or pointless?
2: Yeah, for the most part. You know, I mean, I did think that those things were commandments. And the fact that those churches were doing those things was a step in the right direction. I would have judged them more if they weren't doing them, to be honest. Um, But, yeah, to... In order to grant salvation, they weren't—they didn't qualify as saving ordinances. Okay, good, thank you. Uh,
3: so, how about you, Paul? What do you think about this question?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, growing up in Utah, I think my my main sight into what other churches were doing was through my dad because he was a convert. So he would talk about when we would have like family home evening. Certainly not every every week, but when we would have family home evening, he would talk about. Uh, you know some of the differences between his faith growing up as a Lutheran and his faith as a Latter Day Saint, and he would talk about how he was christened as a Lutheran as a baby, and how that's different than being baptized as as someone who's a believer and choosing to do so. And I remember I remember being a little bit confused as a child about you know the whole concept of the age of accountability that you know at Kind of, it just it seemed kind of arbitrary to me that suddenly at eight years old, um, I would be able to grasp right and wrong. Uh, you know, I kind of wondered, like on my eighth birthday, would I miraculously receive like a measure of wisdom that I didn't have before? Um, it didn't, it didn't always compute with me to to think about things in those terms. And then, and then beyond, you know, learning about Lutheranism by way of my dad, you know, Utah at the time especially I don't, it's, it's changing more and more but at the time especially it was it was heavily LDS and and so I didn't have much interaction with anyone who with very many people who were not of my faith and certainly not uh, any insight or or attendance to their you know initiation rites or anything like that so um, it was all you know it all came to me via what other Latter-day Saints said about uh, what other churches were doing with regards to sacraments and ordinances. And it, it was usually negative. Um, you know, usually some comment about, you know, using wine for communion rather than, rather than water, you know, because of the word of wisdom and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, um, but I think that the teachings of the LDS church made logical sense to me. So like I understood why they were opposed to infant baptism Based on the idea of, a, of the age of accountability, but it still seemed, it still seemed weird to me that there, were, there was this arbitrary age where suddenly everything, suddenly you were responsible for things in a way that you weren't before. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I don't think I understood, like listening to my dad talk about Lutheranism, I don't think I understood why some faiths did sprinkling for baptism instead of immersion um, and then when I got older and, and was in the MTC, you know, I was reading Talmage's works and you know his his kind of screeds against transubstantiation and um, you know some of the other other views of the of the Roman Catholic Church, especially that he kind of went over went after in the Great Apostasy. Uh, then I think I became a little bit more strident in my views, but I think I've touched on that before that I was, you know, growing up I had a largely mostly positive view of other faiths via my dad. Um, But then, you know, when I went on the, on the mission, it, it, uh, it changed me for a number of years.
3: So when you were on your mission, you had more exposure to other points of view that kind of made you see it differently or did it reinforce what you already thought about it in terms of the ordinances in Christianity?
0: Yeah, I think, I think both. Um, So there, there was a time when my, my companion and I were, trying to we we had an appointment scheduled with an investigator and the investigator wasn't home when we went to meet with them so we were kind of changing plans and decided to go tracting that afternoon and there was this area of town that we always rode through on the bus it was a it was a there was like a central square and there was a big beautiful roman catholic church just on one side of the square and then the square was completely lined with like old style apartment buildings that, you know, if you walked in through the front, then there were courtyards in the back and, you know, several uh, stories of apartments all around the courtyard and everything was just meticulously kept, you know, beautiful uh, flowers and everything in the, in the square and um, we would ride through there. So we decided we would go tracked out that area. Um, we, for whatever reason we thought, you know, that, that, that was where we needed to go that afternoon. So we, we went to track there and then on the way down there, we decided, uh, I don't know, we, we got the notion that we should present a book of Mormon to the priest for that, <laughs> for that Catholic church. And so we went and tracked him down. Uh, Oh, looks like we lost Matthew. Matthew, you, the, you there, Are you gone? Bro. Let me bring him back. See if we can get him back. I guess I was boring him.
2: (laughs) He he fell (laughs) asleep and his his face hit the the (laughs) hang up key. Yeah, Uh, it's what happens when you stay up all night every night working on your papers.
0: I know. Poor guy. Or maybe the squirrels got to him finally. Yeah, that's that's probably what it was. Matthew, you there? Says he's not on this call.
2: He messaged us. Sorry, guys. Hiccup in my connection. Squirrels, router wire. Mm-hmm. I knew squirrels were servants of the devil. This just proves it. Yeah, like that's it. Yeah. He's <laughs> it's like I get on Facebook and it's like, I see a post from Matthew. Good news. I've started a new podcast with some <laughs> cool ex-Mormon Christians. <laughs> oh, Matthew's back. Hey, welcome back.
3: Hey, sorry guys. I don't know what the heck happened there. Like I said, I haven't had internet problems like in months and then <laughs> we got to have this call. It's going to happen next Thursday. I know it for my exam. The same thing is going
2: to happen. Oh no, I hope not. I'll be praying it doesn't. <laughs> you
0: no, know, well, it actually, it's interesting because I was I was starting to tell you the story about my companion and I deciding to take the Book of Mormon to this priest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was cutting out some parts of that parts to that story, right? Mm-hmm. Like so we, we, got, we get on the bus to go down there to the the square that I was telling you about to start tracking and trying to track down this. Pre- well, we get, first we get on the bus to, to go down there and then it's on the bus that I, I'm i reading. I think I was reading The uh, Grand Richards, like a marvelous work and a wonder. And for whatever reason was feeling my oats and was just like, oh, we should we should totally give a Book of Mormon to the priest in that church, you know. And we go to get off the bus to change to a different bus that would take us there. And my companion steps off the bus. He doesn't twist his ankle, doesn't nothing, but he's suddenly like overcome with like the worst pain in his ankle. Like he can't even walk. I have to help him over to a, to a bench to sit down. And, you know, I'm just like, Oh, this is, this is totally proving this is what we need to do, you know, because we're being spiritually attacked. So we, um, we get on the next bus and go down there and we try to figure out, how to get in touch with this priest you know we go up to the the door of the church and it's locked you know nobody's there at that time of the day and um we go over and look at the, like the bulletin board uh that's to the side of the, the big church doors and there's a map of the church and then you know the side building uh which we kind of assumed was maybe the rectory and uh it you know that there's some language you know some verbiage in hungarian that kind of indicates that it is the rectory and that part is circled you know and so we we go over to the side there and there's a there's a gate with a with a bell on it and we ring the bell and nobody comes nobody comes so um this old guy is walking past and he you know of course we're you know two americans in missionary garb so he's curious you know who are these guys you know what is this the fbi or what's going on here (laughs) You know, so he, he asked us what's going on and we, we tell him, you know, we're trying to get in touch with the priest that, that uh, preaches at this church. And he said, Oh, well, his, uh, Oh, what's the, what's the name of the house where they live? The, uh, parsonage. He said, the parsonage is, you know, one block over on this street, you know, and he gave us the address. So we went over there and rang the the gate bell there and his secretary came out and, asked us what we wanted and we told him you know who we were and told her who we were and we wanted to see the priest and talk to him about things and she said well he's pretty busy and somehow it's kind of important <laughs> and so she lets us in and uh sets us down in his office and he comes in he's he was a younger priest and um you know i was just in in awe you know like books everywhere you know and he comes in and sits down across the desk from us and asks us what we were doing there and you know, we just launch in like, Hey, we were, you know, knocking doors in your area and we figured we'd come over and let you know what we're doing. And here's the book of Mormon. And it's a another Testament of Jesus Christ. It's new scripture. And he's looking at us like we're, you know, from another planet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what what's interesting is that what he says to us and we, we didn't spend a whole lot of time with him because he was busy. Um, but what he says to us, I, I think back on him, like it's such a, such a not Roman Catholic thing for us to say to us, but he was basically like, why do I need new scripture? I've already got the Bible, you know, which is, you know, cause there's such a, such an emphasis on church tradition and, and doctrine and, and all that kind of stuff in the Catholic church. And so for him to take a stand on, on something that's almost akin to, you know, sola scriptura was interesting to me. Um, but anyway, we spent a few minutes with him, you know, left him the book of Mormon and, and then, Left and you know continued to track in the tracked in the area um, with zero success. But we decided a few days later that we would follow up, and this is where kind of like where ordinances come into play. Um, And we decided the best way to follow up with him um, would be to go to one of his evening masses. Right, so we did that on a Saturday evening. We went and listened to him give mass and sat in the church and you know watched all of that, watched him um, give communion to his to his parishioners, and it was uh, it was an, an opportunity for me to see what other faiths do, and uh, realize that you know the the view that I kind of grown up with and and been given by latter day saints is that all oh, the Catholic Church is evil. Um, but it was really kind of a beautiful experience to go and sit and listen to listen to the mass, listen to the singing, listen to the call and response, and see you know something that has been going on for centuries um so yeah that uh my, so you you had asked me matthew if you know my mission kind of reinforced my negative views of of other faiths and and uh, you know in some ways both like i like i said it, it made me strident but it also gave me an appreciation because i got to see things like that firsthand so
3: and so when you so i'm guessing it was like a i don't know if it was a. Just a normal church or was it like a cathedral or what was it that you visited?
0: It was a, it was a fairly large cathedral. Yeah.
3: So when you, you go inside, you usually see the baptismal. Did, uh, did that bother you or, you know, where usually they have the infants where they baptize them or did they have a large uh, font that they used?
0: Uh, no, they had, yeah, you're right. They had the, the baptismal there right, right near the door. Um, you know, I don't I don't know that it bothered me. I, I don't know that I really took notice of it too much. I was just, I was kind of in awe of the architecture, really.
3: Okay. Uh, I, just, I just thought it'd be interesting just because, you know, missionaries are always thinking about, like, different churches and, you know, we're the one true church and everything else is, you know, part of the quote-unquote great and abominable church. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, that reminds me of my mission. There were, there's lots of beautiful architecture and cathedrals, and I loved visiting cathedrals. And I mentioned it before, but... Uh, one of the cities I was in called Amiens in France. It has one of the largest, I think it might actually be the largest Gothic-style cathedral in in Europe. I can't remember. Um, and it's just massive. You know, you can climb up, like, you know, dozens of flights of stairs or how many. I don't know. How, I can't remember how many there were. You can go to the top and look out and you can just see just for, you know, dozens of miles. It's really awesome. But what's, what's the claim to fame of that cathedral is that I think... And I may be wrong, but I think the specific reason they built that particular cathedral was because the Catholic Church had claimed to have the the head of John the Baptist, mm. and so they built this cathedral to house that head. And it's you can go inside, and it's behind little uh, you know kind of like prison bars almost, and it's like a, just a skull, and it has like a golden crown with some uh, some paintings on there of certain things and john the baptist's life like when he baptized jesus and i guess like once or twice every year they they take the head out and they kind of like parade it in front of the town and things like that so it's really it's really fascinating but yeah i love the architecture and i love chanting too i love i love just like uh gregorian chants isn't that what they're called like sometimes i'll just listen to them on youtube and they're just really really awesome And i kind of like i can see the appeal of that kind of liturgy because it feels very ancient it feels like you're connected to something very old Mm -hmm. um and it's just a different kind of experience, you know, you kind of see a lot of, a lot of modern evangelicalism is kind of like similar in terms of our worship style. So to see something just so radically different and unique, it's, it's, it's interesting, but, um, that's, I don't know. It's, for me, it's never really been an appeal to go to, you know, to move toward that liturgy for my worship, but I could see why it's appealing.
0: Yeah. it, It hasn't been an appeal for me to move towards that either. Um, but I've I think I've developed a, an appreciation for it. So like th- that experience that I just told you about with the, with that priest was in my third area of my mission and my second area of my mission. We were close to a little town where the first Hungarians who moved into the Carpathian Basin from uh, over by, by like the steps of the Ural Mountains um, in the 10th century um, they had built like an earthen fort kind of to protect themselves when they moved into this little it's a town there now but it wasn't then um but they built this earthen fort and so you could go and visit that and and see like you know climb up the hills that that they had built up you know just throwing up earth on top of earth and um and there was a a really old church there um the you know the first Hungarians that that moved in there weren't Christian, but then the the country was Christianized later on, um, and and one of the oldest churches is in that in that town right near that earthen fort, and so you know visiting places like that, uh, I don't know as as a Latter Day Saint, you know you have the whole narrative of the Great Apostasy, and and you know all of that is is apostate, and you know you, you shouldn't have anything to do with it is kind of the the attitude, but serving a mission in hungary kind of gave me an appreciation for it and it, it i don't know there's a there's there's a sense in which i felt connected with a historic christianity uh that kind of started there on my mission so
2: you know i uh i just you guys talking about your your foreign missions and all the crazy the cool stuff they did like just brings to my mind uh like going to, I actually did visit a, a Calvary Chapel in, in California. And I was like, man, their their style here is to wear shorts and sandals and Hawaiian shirts to church. I was like, man, that's something I don't think I could ever get behind. It's just like it's so irreverent. And, <laughs> and then hearing about what you guys saw in your missions, I'm like, that would have been a totally different uh, perspective for me. Because what I saw was just really casual clothes, you know, uh, loud worship music and I'm like, man, they don't they don't even take God seriously. Like <laughs> to them it's just all fun and games and you know, they don't even realize the depth of of the atonement, you know, like it just doesn't mean anything to them.
3: Yeah, that is interesting and that's that's one reason why I came up with that idea the other week about, like, making a separate episode about spirit and truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the John four twenty four passage, we use that a lot to show that, you know, God is spirit, the Father is spirit. But it's also just a really powerful message in saying that we need to worship God in both truth and in spirit. And I think that those kind of experiences where you've got the rock, you know, like the hardcore rock bands and, like, people are, they're not really focused on, you know, the real, you know, when we speak of liturgy, you don't, it doesn't have to be Roman Catholic liturgy, but like when you're just reading the liturgy in, in terms of the songs you're singing, a lot of times it can be very shallow. Whereas a lot of hymns are very deep theologically. You know, you can actually learn from singing the hymns. So mm-hmm. you know, it's like this balance of well, you can't just be strictly taking the gospel as something like a you know like a philosophical endeavor, but uh, you also can't just you know go straight for the emotions and the mm-hmm. So that'll be interesting to talk about then. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, I was going to mention too. Uh, the reason I brought up my mission is the fact that there's a different cathedral in that in, uh, I think it was Belgium in in uh, Liège, and uh, in there I think it was a cathedral. It might just be a church. I don't know. But you go inside and and in their baptismal actually has uh, twelve oxen underneath, kind of like you know the LDS what? baptismal fonts. Mm. And we saw that as, like, LDS, we're like, see, like, you know, it's a pretty old cathedral, like, several hundred years, you know, like, maybe even over a thousand, I don't know, but it's very old. And uh, so we were like, hey, this is like apostasy. But see, like some things stuck out, you know. But of course, it, it could only fit an infant. You couldn't <laughs> baptize oh, <all> no. <laughs> an adult in there. <laughs> but we're like, see, like, you know, they probably just took like, you know, our our temple baptismal fonts. And like over time, they just made them smaller and smaller, you know. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of like thoughts we had in our mind. And I took pictures of that, too. But it, it was cool to see, you know. It was cool. Um, yeah. So I think, I think that was a really good discussion. I, it is like as a Latter-day Saint, I felt. Similarly um, to you, Michael, when you were when you were talking, the passage that came to my mind was uh, section twenty-two of Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, it was it was, an, it was a quote unquote you know revelation in response to people who had already been baptized, and so they you know went to Joseph and they said, "Hey, I've been baptized. Do I have to be baptized again if I want to join the church?" And uh, so in that section it says, "Behold, I say unto you that all old covenants have I caused to be done away in this thing, and this is a new and everlasting covenant." Um, moving on, it says. Wherefore, although a man should be baptized a hundred times, it availeth him nothing, for you cannot enter in at the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works. For it is because of your dead works that I have caused this last covenant and this church to be built up unto me, even as in days of old. So, according to that section, and it's pretty clear in LDS doctrine that if you're not baptized by their authority, and you're not doing it the way that's prescribed by their authorities, then it it doesn't really count. Like you said, Michael, I kind of had a similar uh, idea that for Christians who were baptized or took uh, communion or Lord's Supper or Eucharist, you know whichever term they use, I felt you know it's good. You know they, they want to try to honor God; they're trying to do their best, but it doesn't ultimately count for their eternal life. It doesn't it doesn't give them forgiveness of sins because they don't have the right authority. So that's so I had pretty much the same view that you did.
2: Yeah, and to, to go along with that too. I mean, you have got Doctrine and Covenants one thirty two, verse seven that says, you know. The conditions of this law are these, all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not made and entered into and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, you know, of him who is uh, anointed both as well for time and for all eternity, and that too most holy by revelation and commandment through the medium of mine anointed. You know, it's very wordy, but it basically says it's – you know, if it's not done by the priesthood, there have no if, if efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead. And that's talking about, you know, marriage ceilings, but, you know, I, I felt that applied to all the things that resembled saving ordinances that other churches did. You know, if it's not done by the priesthood, if it's not, you know, done by the proper authority, it's not going to have any effect in the next life.
3: Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's really a really great passage for, I mean, for their view. And there was there was in one of the LDS discussion groups, uh, a Christian was asking LDS, so if the church apostatized when there was the death of all the apostles, well, what about all these churches that were set up everywhere? You know, because it's not like there was only 12 apostles, they weren't everywhere. So you still had these churches kind of working autonomously to some degree. But then once the apostles died, what happened? Did these churches immediately just, like, start going crazy, you know? Did they stop being the church? I thought that was a really good question because it made me think, okay, how would I answer that as a Latter-day Saint? Hmm. And I think I probably would have answered, well, those who were baptized when the apostles were around and still had the authority, well, they would have had access to, you know, the ordinances. But eventually, people would die off. You know, there would be no valid ordinations to the priesthood, and then when you don't have that, then eventually – all the valid priesthood holders would die, and then basically it would fizzle out. So it wasn't like an immediate. I would have answered that it wasn't an immediate apostasy in terms of ending all. You know, the Christian Church just instantly went off the earth. It was kind of more of a fizzling out.
2: I saw it as a fizzling out too, but I guess the counter question that I would ask them, you know, would probably be, you know, if that happened today, if if some horrible accident befell the prophet and the apostles, and they all were off the earth at the same time. Could the church recover?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, uh, I think we should move on. So, thank you for your input, by the way. Was the LDS view of their saving ordinances something that was a firm part of your testimony as a Latter-day Saint? Was it something that was a struggle to let go or overcome in your faith journey out of the LDS Church? So, let's start with you this time, Paul.
0: I would say yes to both of those questions. So, yes, it was a pretty firm part of my testimony when I was a Latter-day Saint. And yes, it was something that was a bit of a struggle to overcome in my journey out. Um, I think, you know, the LDS Church's five saving ordinances, um, baptism confirmation, priesthood ordination for males, temple endowment, and temple marriage, I think I kind of viewed them as like rungs on a ladder, right, the path path of obedience to the ordinances is laid out pretty clearly before you as a Latter-day Saint. You know exactly what you must do and complete for exaltation. It's it's very well defined, and so um, you know I I kind of viewed that as you know these are the things I need to complete. These are the things I need to do, and once I've done those things, then you know exaltation isn't guaranteed, but at least I've completed all of the ordinances that I'm supposed to do. Um, one one in particular, talking about kind of like the the path out um, temple marriage was was particularly difficult to unravel as as I had my faith transition and, and I'll talk about m- more of that on an, on an episode that we, you know we've kind of planned out. but um, I'll touch on it just kind of generally here. So like temple marriage is the final saving ordinances ordinance of the LDS church, uh, if one <laughs> excludes the second anointing. but in a sense, once one, once you've been baptized or once you've been married in the temple, um, you've obeyed and completed all of the ordinances. And then you just have to endure to the end and obedience to the commandments and you will be exalted. And so, um, you know, when you leave the idea of, uh, you know, what uh, what does that mean now? Right. What does marriage mean now? Um, that was a tough one to, to kind of work through and for Angela and I to kind of walk through. And we'll, we'll cover more on that, like I said, in the other episode. But um as I, as I started to go through my faith crisis, I kind of came to view the temple ordinances as additions to the normal historic Christian sacraments of, of like baptism and, and uh, confirmation. Um, and so, you know, things that I noticed were that the temple ordinances are not in the Book of Mormon, right? They're not in the New Testament. Um, so what are they a restoration of kind of became the question that I really wrestled through. Um, an example would be like, you know, washing and anointing, um, is it's sort of like confirmation in the Roman Catholic Church or chrismation in the Eastern Orthodox Church um but even then it has it has a different stated purpose right cuz like in in the Roman Catholic Church confirmation and, and in the Eastern Orthodox Church chrismation is it's the seal of the the holy spirit upon the believer right but in the LDS church that's done at at your confirmation following your baptism so this separate washing and anointing ritual um, has a completely different stated purpose than, than it's maybe historic precedent within Christianity. Um, and so those questions are things that I kind of wrestled through as I, as I was working my way out. Um, but if, if the temple ordinances are accretions, then I was left with the question, uh, okay, so which and how many ordinances are actually biblical? And I had to work through that. Hmm.
3: Listen, that's interesting that you thought about those connections between temple ordinances and historical Christianity. The way I kind of saw it was, I when I saw the washing and anointing, I, I thought of when Aaron prepared his sons to be priests in the temple. So I thought it went all the way back to Old Testament times. And then I figured, well, the Roman Catholic Church probably took that and kind of did it for their own thing. So it's interesting that you were comparing it not to Old Testament temple, but to, you know, historic churches, you know following the New Testament. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, okay, how about you, Michael?
2: So, I would also say yes to both of those questions. My testimony was absolutely grounded in the saving ordinances. Um, I really believed that all of them needed to be performed like Paul. I saw them like rungs on a ladder, things that needed to be done. And then after they were done, I could um, I could get by by enduring to the end and being diligent about my repentance and Things like that. Um, I did go through uh, quite a transition when it came to the ordinances, especially when uh, forensic righteousness came into the picture, because I started to kind of realize, you know, if uh, if it's Christ's righteousness that that brings me to the celestial kingdom, then he already underwent all of these ordinances. And so, I don't actually need any of them. And so, in effect, Christ became my saving ordinance, um, if that makes any sense. And so, the problem that that presented for me was, you know, if, if Christ is my sacrament, so to speak, then there was no need for a restoration. Because you don't need the restoration to have Christ. There's millions of people on the planet who have a relationship with christ and so once i kind of made that leap um i realized that the uh the ordinances weren't valid in the church you know it's it's one of those things where i kind of had to realize the church wasn't necessary before i could uh I, i could come to grips with the fact that they weren't essential in my life anymore um let's see as far as um leaving the church it was one thing that I struggled with a little bit because, you know, I came into uh, into faith, started going to a Christian church, and I did get baptized, but there was so little liturgy around it that it just felt like it wasn't really cemented in. Like in Mormonism, there are so many layers of liturgy. You know, you get baptized, and then you have hands laid on you for the… The gift of the Holy Ghost, and then you receive the Aaronic priesthood, and then you receive the Melchizedek priesthood, and then you've got your washings and anointings in the temple, and then your endowment, and then the sealing, and it's just buried underneath all these layers of things that you think are are doing something, and so it just felt empty for a while um, after my faith transition, because I'm like, man, all I've all I've done is get baptized, and and that's it, so. Um, that was definitely a struggle for me.
3: So to follow up on that, do you feel like, like you said, it, it is pretty simple in most Christian churches. It's very simple in terms of baptism. So at the time, did you kind of crave something that was more involved or, or you know, had more steps to it uh, at the time? And did that change? You know compared then to now, is it something that you've come to accept?
2: Well, I, I think that you know somewhere down deep inside, I still crave that. A little bit, you know, after 32 years, I guess it just doesn't go away that, that easily. But I, you know, I want repentance to be this long drawn out process where I write all the wrongs that I committed and, and, uh, you know, I take lashings for the things that I did wrong. And I don't know, like it just, it does make it feel a lot more legitimate in some ways, but I think in a lot of ways too, it's just my, it's just my pride talking because, you know, the this, this sin in me just wants to take some kind of credit. You know, I want to say that I did something, and, and in reality, it's, it's all Christ. You know, Christ did the work for me vicariously on the cross, and when I came to believe, that was imputed to me. And that's just the simple truth, and I am, I am happy to accept that. So, I mean, there are times, I think, when I crave it, but for the most part... I am completely content with things now. Okay, excellent.
3: So I kind of already talked a little bit in the, pretty much in the intro how I felt. It was the, the priesthood and the ordinances were very important to me in my testimony and they were probably the last ch- chains to uh, break before I fully you know gave myself to leaving or committed to leaving the LDS Church and attending a Christian church. Those were the last things that were holding me on because I thought, well, you know, it doesn't matter really in the end when it comes to your own salvation. You can teach all kinds of false things. You know, like I was out for a while. I was reading the Forgotten Trinity by Doctor White while I was taking the bus to my LDS ward. <laughs> you know, to and I was still teaching um, uh, primary, and it didn't it didn't really prick my conscience because you know I was teaching things like keep the commandments and follow Jesus. You know, things like that where I didn't feel like a conflict of interest. But then I thought, well, just the idea of being there. In the LDS Church and pretending like, you know, everything was fine, even though I had, you know, major differences with church doctrine and teachings that uh, I thought just being there made it seem like I supported it. So, but uh, after understanding Sola Fide that, you know, we're, we're justified or we're declared righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, like, you know, just understanding that, especially from Romans, that's that was kind of like the linchpin. Like once those chains broke, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to trust the Bible because this is what God is clearly teaching, so… If I stand before him and I'm going to be judged, well, if I'm wrong, then the Bible's wrong with me. That's kind of the attitude that I had, and it was by God's grace that I understood that. As a born-again Christian, do you have the same view of the ordinances of the Church of Jesus Christ as you did as a Latter-day Saint? How do you think they've changed? So, Michael, let's go with you.
2: All right. The biggest change is that I no longer believe that ordinances make a difference when it comes to our Justification. Um, now, what was kind of confusing about the ordinances is, you know, some of them were for eternal life, like baptism and the receiving receiving of the gift of the Holy Ghost. But then, when I when I was making my transition, I was still hanging on to Mormonism by my fingernails, and so I'd say, well, the temple ordinances are for exaltation, and that's totally separate from salvation. And so that way, I could kind of kind of get away with saying I'm saved by faith alone, or it's just baptism and that's all that I need. Uh, but at this point, you know, I think, uh, I think that, that Christ's grace is enough to give us whatever we need. Um, I'm not opposed to, uh, you know, the ordinances being useful still, but not for eternal life, but but for our sanctification. Okay, great. How about you, Paul?
0: I would say that, no, my, my view is not the same. Um, so, you, you and, you, and Michael both touched on the idea within the LDS Church that the ordinances aren't efficacious unless they're performed by someone who holds the, holds the proper priesthood authority, and that proper priesthood authority is only found within the LDS Church. And, and Matthew, in, in your intro, you touched on um, some quotes that you know are kind of to that effect. Uh, let me let me kind of look back on that. Um, the one specifically was was from Orson F. Whitney uh, from A Marvelous Work and A Wonder, right, where he talks about the the learned Roman Catholic who comes to Utah and basically presents the idea to Orson F. Whitney that you know it's either the Catholic Church or it's the or it's the Latter Day Saint Church, right? That that is correct because those are the the only two that are really claiming priesthood authority, right? It's either uh, a, an unbroken succession of, of priesthood authority. Or it's you know a restoration of priesthood authority that was lost. Um, I, I question the the reality of that conversation actually taking place. But um, it was interesting. I was doing some research on this week on you know the Roman Catholic Church view, and and I was really kind of curious about the the way the second Nephi thirty one refers to baptism as the gate, um, because I was reading. I was listening to actually a a lesson on the Roman Catholic catechism and it referred to baptism as the door. And so that made me curious, well, where does that idea originate, right? What the baptism is a gate or a door, um, the Catholic catechism most recent one obviously isn't referencing the book of Mormon. So it's gotta be some idea that predates both, um, so I started looking into it, and actually um, the first reference I found to it was in the the Council of Florence, which is I can't remember what twenty what seventeenth Ecumenical Council I think um, in like uh, 1431 or something like that. And uh, it was it was interesting because it refers to to baptism as a gate, and I thought that was that was kind of fascinating. But then as I was, as I was reading through that. Uh, that council, or no, I, I ended up reading through a later council. No, it was the same one. Um, it was talking about how, you know, who who can baptize. Um, and it was talking about how, you know, it, it's, it should be uh, a priest, but it doesn't have to be a priest. A lay person can baptize or perhaps even a, a pagan, it said, could baptize, which I thought was really interesting because it totally was... Um, you know, kind of doing away with the idea that the person who performs the baptism is what makes the baptism efficacious, uh, which is very much the the Latter-day Saint view. So and, and also, you know, I guess also the Roman Catholic view, but that, uh, you know, that council was kind of um, making the statement that it, that that really doesn't matter. And I know that that's that's been worked out within the Catholic Church, you know, or even earlier on in Christian history. Uh, was it the Donatists? I think. Does that, does that sound right, Matthew? Um,
3: uh, talking about like whether sacraments are efficacious or not. depending yeah, like on if, if they someone, rejected the faith. If yeah. they rejected
0: the faith, yeah, exactly. So, um, the I guess the you know the Donatists were those who uh, felt that those who uh, had you know during persecution had renounced their faith, uh, even if not truly, but at least to protect themselves. You know, from the from the governmental, you know, Roman authorities, that that would make their any any uh, you know baptisms or or other sacraments that they had performed uh, of no value, and the, and the church had ruled that that you know that wasn't the case, that it wasn't you know the 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 efficaciousness of the of the sacrament was not based upon the worthiness of the the person who performed it. So um, you know that's worked out long before. Um, you know, the LDS Church comes on the scene, but but definitely, I don't hold hold a view anything like that, where the you know the effic- efficacy of of the the ordinance is, is based on the authority of the one performing it. Um, I'm not a I'm not a baptismal regenerationist, so I don't believe that that you can just take anyone and and, and dunk them in water or sprinkle them and and you know poof regeneration happens um, because of the water or or anything like that. Um, there's nothing magical in the water. I've I've not fully embraced the, the Zwinglian idea, though, that that baptism is merely symbolic. I I lean towards the idea that that God works in baptism and that Christ is present spiritually in communion. So um I guess I hold more of more of a sacramental view than an ordinance view, but um, yeah, still thinking through that in some ways.
3: Yeah, thank you. When you're talking about the various views of baptism and the Lord's Supper over the centuries, um, but yeah, it's, it's something really fascinating to for me to read into to all the historical views, and uh, maybe maybe I should wait off to talk more about this until later. But but yeah, just to see all the different views of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and. Yeah, when I, when I was investigating the church, you know, when I was kind of agnostic and kind of trying to figure out what to do with my life, yeah, I saw it as, well, it's got to be either the LDS Church or the Roman Catholic Church. It just made sense to me that way. Um, so I obviously don't think that way. So similar to both of you, I don't think you need a special uh, sacerdotal priesthood to perform the ordinances, first of all. And I don't think that they're an absolute necessity for eternal life. So, But at the same time, I also don't believe that they accomplish nothing whatsoever, uh, kind of like as has, has already been talked about. I think they actually do accomplish something, and I think most Christians do. It's just that we disagree, perhaps slightly, and exactly why we do baptism and what, it, what actually is accomplished in baptism.
2: I'm interested in hearing, and maybe this is a question down the line um, somehow, but on what you guys do think that the sacraments um, accomplish.
3: Yeah, let's uh, let's see. Hey, let's let's do that. And uh, maybe I can ask something specifically, like, what do you think the, the sacraments accomplish? Because it'll set up. Okay, well, why do we use different terms, and then why is there disagreement? Is that a bad thing? And then we can say, okay, now we've established that. Then let's talk about our views. When considering historical Christianity and the ordinances or sacraments, why do you do you think that there is this difference in terminology among different groups, and do you prefer one term over the other, and why?
0: Okay, so my understanding of the difference in terminology is that it reflects the difference in belief about the nature of of the acts, right? So uh, sacraments are viewed as a means of grace from God, ordinances are viewed as demonstrating a person's faith and are done in remembrance of Jesus. Is that, is that how you understand the differences, too, in the terminology?
3: Yeah,
2: basically. Yeah,
0: me too. That sounds about right. Okay. So, so the next part of the question is do I prefer one term over the other and why um, I think personally I prefer sacraments because i I view the ordinances as <laughs> I view the sacraments as having uh, a real effect on a believer um, and that 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 God works within those um, so so that that terminology makes more sense to me
3: okay that makes sense. How about you
2: Michael well I uh, I disagree with Paul on this on this one, but I still love him. Uh, <laughs> um, I I agree with his um, description of of ordinances versus sacraments, and I do have to say that I think part of the reason I don't like the word sacraments is just coming out of the the LDS Church too, where you know I I just uh, get triggered, you know, thinking like oh the sacrament it's uh, it's the ordinance that. Uh, repairs my broken covenant with god that i broke by sinning this week so i I have to admit that that's probably a bias in there somewhere too but i do um i do hold I, i do prefer ordinances and that's just because i think um i believe that all the all the grace that we need has been given to us by christ to be justified and so anything else that we do after that is going to be an act um just symbolizing a change that has already happened in our lives. No, um, that's not to say that I think an ordinance cannot do something to the believer. You know, for instance, when I took uh, when I took the sacrament the first time. I mean, when I took communion for the first time in in a Protestant church, I I literally wept because of the symbolism compared to what I was dealing with in the Mormon church. Because in Mormonism, it's like, okay, like, this is, like I said, to repair my broken covenant with God to, you know, I'd done something wrong. And if I'd done something really serious, I couldn't even take it. But in Christianity, it represented God's unwavering love for me and and the offer of grace regardless of where I was. It was that Christ died for me while I was still a sinner. And so it definitely still had an impact on me. It was a big spiritual impact. So I don't think calling it an ordinance means that it's just this dry thing that, that doesn't do anything. Um, but on the other hand, I wouldn't say that it it's uh, giving out grace in any way to bring us to justification, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't make sense.
3: It is interesting just because it's hard to really say well, ordinance means this thing to every Christian who uses that term, or sacrament means this thing to every Christian who also uses that term, because just with, with pretty much just every topic, there's always going to be a spectrum of, of who understands this term and why they use it for that reason, and, and you know there's nuances that you kind of miss between traditions. So, uh, But yeah, in general, we, we talked about how ordinances are basically, they're more symbolic and remembering of what God has done in the past. Versus sacraments, which are conveying grace to those who receive it, and more signs of what God has done in the past, but what He's also continues to do to the believer. Um, that's that's kind of one comparison. I think I found on one website when I was reading about the Lutheran view, and I was like, oh, okay, that's a pretty good comparison, you know. Um, now I'm now I'm a strange duck because <laughs> um, so the church that I attend and uh, what I identify myself as is either a particular Baptist or a Reformed Baptist. Uh, there are many Reformed that say that I'm not Reformed. That's fine. <laughs> um, particular Baptist works just fine. but uh, So I hold to the 1677-1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and it's kind of like the grandson of the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646, which is a Presbyterian confession. And uh, what's interesting is you can actually look up online, just Google uh, Westminster Confession versus London Baptist Confession, and they're nearly identical, and almost you know over 90% of the confessions are nearly identical. But there are certain things that they change. And this website, they tabulated all the changes. So, like, if the words are common to each one, they're in black. If they added on, or, you know, if there's something unique in one confession or the other, it's in blue. And if there's something slightly rephrased or changed, then it's in red. So, it's really it's really cool um, to compare. But I'm looking in chapter uh, 28 of the Westminster Confession, which is related to chapter 29 of baptism in the London Baptist Confession. So, they're kind of, you know, they're there's slight... Different enumerations with their chapters, but they're, but they're similar. They're both talking in baptism. So paragraph one of the Westminster Confession says that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. And the the Baptist Confession, it's slightly shorter. And uh, so when I said the Westminster Confession, it says baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament. And in the London Baptist Confession, it says baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, to be unto the party baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him, In his death and resurrection, so they took that part out where it says also to be a a solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. So they took that part out. But what's interesting is that when you really study particular Baptist theology, um, we do believe that baptism is an initiate, it's an an initiatory right to enter the church. So you can't really take every you know parts they took out. You can't really say oh that means they don't believe this because that's not necessarily the case. It may be emphasized elsewhere. Anyways, I'm getting into like a a big deal here, but basically they call it an ordinance in our confession. But um, uh, when you think of the word ordinance, it means something that's commanded or ordered by a higher magistrate, right? It comes from the word or to ordain. So it's it's ordained, meaning it's commanded by Christ for His church. So in that sense, yes, I, I'm totally fine with the word ordinance. Um, but at the same time, I don't. I'm similar to both of you where. It's not simply just a symbolic act. It's not something that's that's another way to witness your faith in Christ or to be symbolic of something only. And I do believe that it's a sacrament in the sense that God does convey grace to those who receive it. Um, and in the Reformed tradition, whether you're Baptist or otherwise, they always see these these rites, these ordinances or sacraments. They see them as um, they see them only as efficacious through faith. So while Presbyterians baptize their infants. They do not believe that it is ex, opera, uh, ex opere operato, meaning um, in the in the work working. If I remember correctly, basically it just means when you do it, it necessarily conveys what it represents. And Presbyterians don't believe that, um, and Baptists don't either. We see that we see it as contingent upon faith. If that makes sense, when they baptize their infants, they do believe that it does baptize them into the visible church, but it doesn't convey to them what it represents, meaning being ingrafted into Christ, salvation, forgiveness of sins, etc. And same thing with Baptists, we see that as it's it's efficacious only if you have faith, and ideally for a particular Baptists, you should only give baptism and the Lord's Supper to those who have a valid profession of faith and they you know they show signs of of fruits of repentance and, and faith, um, because we it's based on our view of the covenants. We have a particular Baptist have several variations of covenant theology, but we see that it's preserved for those who are in the New Covenant, and we see that the New Covenant, according to Hebrews 8, is reserved only for those who uh, show signs that they are regenerate, that they are part of, uh, part of God's people, part of God's elect. So... I have no problem, so to to wrap it all up, I really don't have a problem with either one. I know that some some Baptists in my church prefer to call it an ordinance and not a sacrament. And sometimes I wonder, I don't know for certain, but I think there might be a historical thing behind that. Um, Because, like I said, the theology of the particular Baptists, they had no problem with this concept of God conveying the benefits of redemption through baptism for those who have faith in terms of sanctification and growing in faith and overcoming of sins or mission of sins, these things like that. So, but at the same time, maybe they wanted to separate themselves a little bit from the Roman Catholic Church. Maybe there is that reason there. I'm not sure why they chose to use the word ordinance and not sacrament. Because they took all references to sacrament out of the London out of the London Baptist Confession where it existed in the Westminster Confession. So, like I said, I don't know historically why they did that. But I don't think there's really a problem with either one. And, and in most other groups, like with Lutherans, uh, Anglicans, they call them sacraments also. Yeah, I think it's just mostly Baptists. Anabaptists, Quakers. Well, I guess Quakers don't really do it anymore. But I think they're kind of the ones that, that call ordinances. And I think most other people call it sacraments. But there might be other groups that call it ordinances.
2: Ordinances, sorry. Yeah, must be the Baptist in me then. <laughs> I was just gonna say, like Paul. Sorry if I came off sounding aggressive. That was unintended. I'll hold it against you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, nah, no worries. It's okay, okay for like, us to disagree.
2: <laughs> As you crack your knuckles, <laughs> we're gonna like, beat him into submission. You no, know, <laughs> I'll crack my
3: Bible. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Oh,
2: it's
0: like okay, okay, you're you're still a new Christian, Michael. You just don't get it yet.
3: <laughs>
0: no, no uh, like 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 I said, there's, there's there's thing parts of my view that I'm still working out and working through and thinking through what's biblical, and you know, that's I've I've expressed I think several times that that my my intent is to have my my views conform to the word of god and so if i'm wrong on something and the word of god shows me that then then my views will change so
2: yeah ditto for me too i mean that's definitely the direction that i'm trying to go and you know i'm still you know trying to i guess to define where i am exactly and there's things that i don't i don't grasp fully yet so i mean you know in a year i could be somewhere totally different than where i am right now
1: I think that's always good to always be reforming, always conforming to the word of God. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page. And we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon.
2: You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, PocketCast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher, Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word.
0: You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well.
2: Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at AdamsRoadMinistry.com. Stay bright, flyer